Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The last thing the Veterans Health Administration needs is new employees who are substance abusers or felons with access to VA pharmacies. But the agency lacks a consistent procedure for finding out about such people from the Drug Enforcement Administration. According to the Government Accountability Office, the VHA in fact hired thousands of people who might have drug-related convictions. We get more now from GAO's Director of Forensic Audits and Investigations, Sato Bagdoyan. Sato, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me back. So this is a strange one because the VA has been using hiring authorities and salary authorities that it has, and they've had record levels of hiring in the last year and expect that to happen again this year. But what's going on here with respect to their requirement, I think, that they have to check with DEA on the background of certain employees? Right. So the issue there is employment waivers. Basically, if you have access to controlled substances, as well as a felony conviction, among other things, you may need a employment waiver through DEA. But as we found in our reporting and in the recent testimony I gave, VA does not have a policy for determining whether a waiver is necessary. So essentially, as they did with the 50 people we identified from our projectable sample, they make those determinations on an ad hoc or arbitrary basis. So it really is a control weakness with potential dual risk, as I emphasized during my testimony, risk to the well-being of veterans, as well as risk of diverting controlled substances. So that's a serious matter. And you looked at the total population in VA, and I think there was something like 10,000 people, if I'm correct. Yeah, we started with a universe of about 400,000. This was the January to June 2020 period for our analysis. And we identified about 12,600 people who had criminal histories with controlled substance convictions. And of those, about 1,800 had felony convictions, at least one. So this is a, uh, you know, a risk-prone population. Of course, everybody deserves a chance to be employed once, uh, you know, they moved on from that history. But, uh, you know, it is, as I mentioned, uh, a serious risk if left unaddressed. And just to be clear, is the VA statutorily required to get waivers from DEA or is there a policy that they're not following? That's a great question. There isn't a DEA requirement, believe it or not, even though the waiver issue has been in place since 1971, amended again in 1991. But there is no requirement for an agency to have such a policy. Of course, it is a prudent thing to do, to have a roadmap to make those determinations. But, uh, you know, with that mixed picture, VA basically decided they weren't going to have a policy. And who would make the decision? That is to say, if DEA doesn't give a waiver, then that means VA could not hire that person? Well, that's also a technical complication. I don't have a good answer for you on that one. It would be kind of an unbalanced consideration. But of course, VA would have to ask for a waiver, and that did not occur as far as we can tell. Right. And so, therefore, it's a possible range of types of convictions that could be here. If someone had a small pot misdemeanor type of conviction, that's one thing. If they were a drug dealer and distributor and really rose up high in the substance class one type of conviction, that's another matter. And so there's some nuance here. 
Yeah, the nuance is you have to have access if you're an employee, and DEA defines access more broadly than VA does. VA's is quite narrow. You have to have direct access to control substances and essentially be a prescriber, whereas DEA says, well, those are good, but mere proximity or influence to control substances should also be considered. We're speaking with Seto Bagdoyan. He is Director of Forensic Audits and Investigations at the Government Accountability Office. Yeah, because there's also the subtlety of who within the VHA actually can have access, and they're locked, their pharmacies, and everything's barcoded. You just can't walk in and grab a shelf full of aspirin or anything. So there yeah. are people that may prescribe, but they may not be the same people that actually go into the pharmacy and take things off the shelf Correct. and vice Correct. versa. Yep. So with that in mind, actually, an interesting statistic is that about 1,400 or so of 20,000 reports of theft or loss of controlled substances were reported by VHA. So that's about 7% of the total. These are, of course, reported. We don't know what's missed or unreported and so on. So the risk is there. We're focusing on the risk, not that something bad is going to happen. But if it were to happen, consequences would follow. Yeah, just to finish that thought, 1,400 out of 20,000 reports of theft were what? From VA. These were reported to DEA for 2021. So the stats are pretty dated. Right, but this is all of the thefts of controlled That's substances correct. anywhere. Yeah. 7% That's of right. them are, well, VA is probably about 7% of healthcare delivery in the it's country. Big. Yeah, 400,000 employees, they serve 9 million people through hundreds of facilities around the country. So the risk landscape is wide and deep. And what is VA's response to what you found? I mean, are they then in the process of instituting a policy of collaborating more with DEA? Yes, they actually reported at the hearing itself that uh, there is a draft policy being finalized for waivers that should be in an interim form next month, January 2024. We initially had a deadline of March 2024, so at least they'll have something in place that will provide them a roadmap to make these decisions and be far more attentive to it than to the waiver issue than they have been in the past. It sounds like VHA would like to retain that discretion over who it hires based, I'm guessing, on the nature of that conviction that actually took place. Again, Correct. someone yes. that had marijuana yeah. Yeah. is unlikely to do wholesale theft of Oxycontin, for example, whereas sure. someone who yeah. had a different type yeah. of abuse you know, might yes. do that. Discretion is key, obviously, and that's a good thing. And the totality of the adjudication, taking multiple factors uh, into consideration. But, you know, the, the risk is dangling there, and it is a significant one. Harm to veterans or diversion of controlled substances. And what was Congress's general reaction? I mean, it sounds like this would have maybe invoked something rarely a nonpartisan type of, geez, we got to nail this one down. Yes, yes. Very good point. That did come out pretty loud and clear during the hearing itself. Everyone on the subcommittee, Oversight and Investigations, House Veterans Affairs, turned up and asked good questions from both sides of the aisle. And essentially, the direction to VHA was get this done, get it right, and move on. And we're not even talking about the gaps in background investigations, and hundreds of people wouldn't had not received background investigations. And VHA didn't know about that until we brought it to their attention. 
Yeah, they've got uh, like a whack-a-mole situation there, I think, in an agency that big. There's always something popping up. Would it be accurate to say that the danger here of loss or theft of pharmacy products is bad? It's a financial loss. It's a legal liability, perhaps. But it doesn't sound like necessarily a patient danger type of issue unless something that someone needs is not there because it was stolen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one for me to comment on. But, you know, anytime you're dealing with dangerous controlled substances wandering off premises and ending up somewhere where they shouldn't, that is a danger. Perhaps it's not a danger to VA patients or staff for that matter. But as you said, if a medication is not available off the shelf to a veteran who needs it, then that is a care issue, which is the first part of the risk I, uh, I mentioned earlier. But in the meantime, you'll keep an eye on VHA to make sure that that April deadline for getting some That's type right. of process yeah. in place actually occurs. Yes. So next month, we'll see the interim policy that will make a determination on the extent to which it responds to a recommendation we've had in place since 2019. So by the time it comes out, it would have been about five years in the making. Seto Bagdoyan is Director of Forensic Audits and Investigations at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had 
gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.